Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcast. I'm Matt Robeson, and the name of the show is Beyond Politics. To some extent, you could read that name as a personal question. What happens to people who were deeply enmeshed in politics, and what becomes of them once they move beyond politics? Do they gain a perspective working in our government or in our political system that applies to the rest of the world? And believe me, that is a Venn diagram that has a little overlap, but less than you'd think because there's a whole big world out there outside of politics, and it took me leaving the political sphere to discover it. So, you know, do they gain a perspective or how does living in the rest of the world change their perspective when they think back on politics? Do they view it differently once they get out? For example, our recent guest, Steve Israel, was about as high-ranking a congressman as you can be. And he's turned that, an incredible perspective, into a, a, a new view on just how screwed up our fundraising system is in America. He's channeled his experience into writing satires that show how ridiculous things have become. Well, today's guest offers another great example of what you can take away from a career in our political system and what else you can turn it into in the world. Cicely Simpson served as the legislative director for two Tennessee congressmen on Capitol Hill. And then she became one of the most sought after advocates in the private sector in Washington, DC. That's a euphemism for lobbyist, by the way, advocate, advocate. Eventually, she became the executive vice president of public affairs at the National Restaurant Association. That's the good NRA, not the other NRA. And she was recognized by the Capitol Hill newspaper, The Hill, as one of the top lobbyists in 2015, 2016, and 2017. But when she left that job, she focused everything she had learned into becoming a public speaker, a leadership coach, an author, a podcaster, and the founder and CEO of Summit Public Affairs, I'm looking forward to digging into all of that with Cicely Simpson. Welcome to Beyond Politics. Great, Matt. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, the good NRA is often called uh, buns, not guns. There you go. Buns, not guns. And that's uh, that's spectacular. I, I actually, I can't believe I never heard that. You know, for people who don't know, the National Restaurant Association, we're going to get to this in a second, but it is a BFD, as our president would say. It is one of the biggest lobbying organizations in the world on Capitol Hill. And um, you ran that joint, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. You know, I do want to talk about the path from Capitol Hill to where you are now and some of the successes and stumbles and the connection between one and the other. But for all that to make sense, let's pick this up at kind of the start of the politics and government end of the story. So you, you were working as an attorney. You have kind of this Clarence Darrow, snap your suspenders, I'm just a simple country lawyer vibe in your bio. How did you end up coming from that to working in Congress? Uh, I am going to quote you on that. That is actually <laughs> great. That is actually considering I'm in rural Tennessee today. That is a great well, I'm think, way. Yes, I'm thinking of Inherit the Wind right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm going to quote you on that. But listen, hey, as everything happens in our lives, it's, it was right time, uh, right place, honestly. I had just uh, relocated back to Nashville. I went to law school at Pepperdine and, uh, you know, Malibu, California. Not a bad place to spend three years, by the way. But I came back to Nashville because I figured out, oh, you don't make any money living in L.A. Uh, as a prosecutor. So I came back to Nashville and, look, ran into some old friends from college. And they were running a, a congressional campaign. And they said, do you have any political experience? I said, nope. Any legislative experience? Nope. They said, well, 
how about we just get your help sort of helping the candidate, you know, learn issues and just things that are happening in the news. How about that? Would you like to come on and volunteer with us and help out? And I was like, yeah, it'd be good just to get back into that, that world again. And, you know, get re, re sort of, you know, in, integrated into what's happening in Tennessee politics. And Matt, you know how it goes, right time, right place. Lo and behold, that was August of 2002. And in November, uh, now congressman, now former congressman, Lincoln Davis of Tennessee won that race, the only open seat for a Republican that a Democrat won in 2002, and he won by less than a point. So he said to me that night, hey, do you want to go to Washington? And I said, why would I ever want to go to Washington? And he said, well, but you want to come work for me? I was like, what would I do? And he's like, I don't know. I just won. So you can imagine me talking to my parents. I said, hey, I'm going to Washington. And they're like, why? Why would you do that? I'm like, I don't know. This guy just won and he's offered me a job. And they're like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. You can imagine that drop like a lead balloon on my family. who's was like, you're moving somewhere you've never been. You're going to take a job. You don't know what you're going to be doing. But oh, hey, yeah, let's see how that works out for you. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, for, for people who are listening to this, you know, well, look, if you're if you're listening on the radio and let's say you're in your car, pull over. Don't don't do this while you're driving. But Google Lincoln Davis, because it, what you're picturing as sort of like prototypical politician, that's Lincoln Davis. He is in he's in the dictionary right there. American politician. Boom. That's right. Right? And a great guy, a really a really terrific guy, a hilarious guy, um, a real mensch. Um, if, if I could uh, apply a Yiddishism to him, um, he he was responsible for setting up two members of your staff who subsequently got married, which was uh, which was adorable. All right. So you're on Capitol Hill. What? Let's just give people a, a window. You know, you, you walk into that. You have no idea what you're getting into. You're just a simple country lawyer, um, you know, from a top law school, whatever. What what was it like? I mean, what let me ask it this way. What was your favorite story from that time frame? What what stands out to you? Something funny or unexpected or like hey, this is the way it was. You know, well, and listen, that was right early 2000s. So, I mean, let me just say this. Nothing can prepare you for walking into a congressional office on Capitol Hill. Like nothing, nothing, nothing can compare you to that. And I'll tell you one of the most, uh, two memorable moments real quick. Um, Not funny per se, but they're memorable moments. When we first got there, Lincoln brought three or four of us from Tennessee up to Washington to work for him. And I remember it was cold, right? It was snowy in DC. And he, he said, put your coats on. And we're like, dude, where are we going? And he's like, walk out to the front of the Capitol with you, put your coats on. So we walk out behind him and we're complaining and we're grumbling. And he's like, look up and we're looking at the Capitol dome. And he says, if you ever forget how awesome of a privilege it is to work in this building and represent the people we represent, then it's time for you to go home. And that was early 2003. And that story has stuck with me. And I've told that story many times because nothing can prepare you for how cool it truly is. Um, to work on Capitol Hill. Another memorable moment I'll share with you that I think you probably had happened to you. Remember when the, um, the war in Afghanistan started? We had been in office, actually we've been in office only a couple of months when, these, um, when the space shuttle disaster happened in early 03. And then also when the war had started and I've never seen a general walk into a congressional office and say, I need to see Congressman Davis. And we were like, oh man, this is not good. You get DOD official here, what's going on? And he set, he set me down and our chief of staff and Congressman Davis. And he said to us, he said, I'm just going to prepare you 
that uh, we are about to uh, we are about to retaliate uh, against Afghanistan for what happened on 9/11. He said we do believe the Capitol will be a target for retaliate for this retaliation, and so you need to get your staff prepared that if we are bombed here at the Capitol, they may not make it out alive. And I looked at him and I was like, I didn't did I didn't sign up for this? Wait, are you kidding me? So I had to go deliver the news to our staff. Um, and I had to call my parents and call all the other parents and say, look, hey, if you get a call from Cicely or Beecher, who's our chief of staff, that probably means uh, something's happened to you. And that was a message we were all told to deliver to our parents. So when I say nothing can prepare you for working on Capitol Hill, I mean, I've got some funny stories, too, but those two just kind of illustrate nothing truly can prepare you for being in the arena and the heart of all that's going on uh, in this country and in the world. Well, my version of that is that I started I working started on Capitol Hill. Oh, it was uh, it was right after 9-11. And yeah. I uh, I was working for a member of Congress that it turned out was one of the four House offices where they actually found anthrax. They found anthrax spores inside the office. So my version of your story is, and we, I, I had a similar DOD briefing on the, on the invasion, but um, so my version of this is they find the anthrax spores and we get sat down and it's like, there is anthrax in your office. And then I had to race to call my mother back in New York City because they were about to drop this on CNN. CNN. And I just CNN. knew that they were going to, you know, she was going to see that and she was going to have a coronary, right? And it's like, anyway, and one of my colleagues was supposed to get married, get married. later. Oh, so we all had to show up at the, at the house, the Longworth House office building to get Cipro, the, the uh, antibiotic distributed to us. And she shows up in her wedding dress on the way to the church to get her Cipro. Anyway, that's, uh, I, I, but you know, the other side of that coin is really true too. Is there, is there something that, I mean, you get to, you get to be a part, you know, that inspirational moment of being shown the Capitol dome, you get to be part of some truly consequential debates and, and meaningful steps that, that improve people's lives. Is there something that stands out to you from that experience, something you accomplished or accomplished as part of your team working for these members of Congress that that you feel really proud of in retrospect. Yeah, I will tell you one of the, I think, crowning sort of achievements of my congressional career that's also followed me into the private sector is I have had bills signed into law by every president that I, you know, or administration that I've worked with. So from Bush to Obama to Trump and now obviously working with the Biden administration. So for me, that all started uh, on Capitol Hill, but one proud moment I had, and uh, you guys may remember the Medicare, the Medicare Part D debate. Oh, uh, I remember that, that was a late night. It was the longest vote in history, in congressional history, until a couple of years ago, and it was replaced. But remember, we were in the Capitol, we were in the gallery until six thirty that morning, voting three and a half hours of which was not voting because there was one member who they could not get to make a decision, and I will. I will uh, skip that name, but um, but although I, I, I had it reported that he was sitting there getting lobbied on both sides of his head, and he was remaining completely so he wouldn't move, he wouldn't move a muscle in his face for like three hours. Yeah, he didn't move for three and a half hours. It was the most bizarre situation. But in the middle of that, Lincoln snuck off and came up in the gallery where I was sitting, and Beecher was sitting next to me, and he said, "Hold this," and he handed me his boat card. And he said, whatever you do, don't give this back to me. And I was like, I 
I kind of feel like that's a bad thing because he had voted, um, he had voted against the Medicare. He had voted with the Bush administration uh, on the Medicare Part B, and Democrats were furious. So he brought the the card that you switch your vote. He brought that to me and said, "Whatever you do, don't give to me. I'm not switching my vote. I will be one of the Democrats who will vote with the Bush administration on this." And I think he was one of three. I went home that I, I slept in the gallery that night, House Gallery that night. I went home the next morning, and I will tell you, 20 years later, I still had that vote card that he oh, handed to me that night that he told me not to ever give back to him. And guess what? It was in my pocket when I got home and I never gave it back to him. But that was one of those memorable moments where, you know, longest vote in congressional history. And yeah, just to see that play out very early on in my, that was in year one or two of my congressional, uh, you know, career. And just, I still have it literally sitting over here with my campaign buttons on my, on my shelf. I still have that vote card that he handed me that night. That was, that was, I love that. I love that. It's the congressional version of you hand off your car keys. It's it. That's, that's really great. You know, I, I would just kind of weigh in that less people think that this is all about passing big pieces of legislation or, you know, you're on the floor for this historic moment. There's also a tremendous amount that goes on in a congressional office that doesn't achieve that kind of, you know, lofty headline grabbing uh, moment. And, it's still very valuable. And what really, you know, it, it, it comes to mind because right before we got on the air, I was telling you a little bit about, I, I now have an American flag behind me on my Zoom wall. And it, 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 my father in the early 1980s was working on trying to get a tax law passed into law. And the way they do it in Congress, they have to repass it. They have to re-up it every year. And he eventually ended up working very closely with some of the key tax writers in Congress, Dan Rostenkowski and Charlie Rangel, the legendary Harlem congressman for, oh gosh, I don't even know how long. And wow. my father died in, in 1986. And subsequently, Congressman Rangel saw to it that I received an American flag that had flown over the Capitol along with a, a statement in the congressional record. And what's interesting is, you know, you, you're pointing to the voting card that is just off camera for you here that you have on your desk. I have the flag behind me and I have that statement from the congressional record framed and up on the wall of my office. And for me, years later, when I worked on Capitol Hill, I saw inside the sausage factory. I knew that Congressman Rangel had never written that speech. He'd never delivered that speech. A staffer had written it and inserted it into the congressional record, which you can do. And he had never even hit the floor with it. And someone had taken care of the flag, it doesn't make it any less significant or meaningful to me. And one thing that congressional offices do is they perform these kinds of services for thousands and thousands of constituents every year. And these are meaningful things in all of these people's lives. Just seeing behind the curtain didn't, didn't remove any of the magic of that for me. And so that's one thing that I always took away aside from sort of these magisterial moments of legislation is that it is an opportunity to do some meaningful things in people's lives. Absolutely. I, you know, I could honestly say, and you could probably as well, when you left every, every night to go home at whatever time that may have been, you knew you made a tangible difference in somebody's life that day, whether that was the constituent who called in, who needed help with their social security, uh, whether that was someone who called in, I mean, th as you all know, the, the issues that come across the phone calls that are made every day run the gamut, but 
and there's still people now that I run into uh, here in Tennessee when I'm back home visiting and not in DC. And they still say to me, do you remember? And they'll bring up some story of something that, you know, happened 20 years ago almost, but it was something we did to help them uh, in the congressional office, whether that was working for Lincoln Davis or subsequently working later for Congressman Jim Cooper, who's still in office and represents Nashville. But I still get those stories all the time. And that tangible difference we made and the staff continue to make every day is what's making a difference in the lives of so many people that you're right, never make it on TV and never make it to one of those really sort of magical moments, but it's making a difference in people's lives. And, you know, while we're just waxing eloquent and then we really will uh, move on to some other parts of, of your career and experience and some of the really interesting stuff that you're doing now. But, you know, one, one thing that always stood out to me about the experience of working on Capitol Hill, I, I had a, a colleague say to me, the great thing for her was that if you're, if you're on the Hill and you're a staffer in the room, whoever has the most information runs the meeting. And it's a place where it's entirely possible in venues where this is not always true across America, you're a person of color, you're a woman, you know, you're, you're a young professional, you can, you can get a heck of a lot done. At least that was always my perception. Now, look, I'm a white dude, um, you know, from, from New York city. So this wasn't so much my personal experience, but did that stand out for you that, you know, that, that you really can have an incredible impact and that you're not, in some ways, you're not held back in, in some of the ways you are in other places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is well said, Matt, in terms of, and look, you know, the joke I always heard when I got to Capitol was the country's being run by 20 somethings. And I was like, holy crap, that's really true. I was 25 and look at the responsibility that was, you know, handed to me. But no, you are, um, no, what you're saying is exactly right. I, I could tell you stories of, you know, I've been in the room negotiating with Nancy Pelosi before. I've been in, you know, many rooms negotiating, but also in those meetings where you can, again, one person can have a huge impact on the outcome of a conversation about legislation, about regulations, whatever's going on that day. It is phenomenal how you can truly be that one person in the room and you can really sort of turn the tide of a lot of different conversations. I've actually done that. I can actually tell you stories of I've walked in the room and one thing was going on. And then by the time we were done, you know, something else, um, you know, had happened. But all that's born, I think, out of your desire to serve. That's why you're there. Um, and your desire to serve is what's going to put you in those conversations and help you make a difference. So what I want to do now is. I think we've, I mean, look, you and I could tell war stories from Capitol Hill for, for hours here and we could delight ourselves and we could probably delight some of our listeners, maybe <laughs> not all, but I do want to move on to yeah. some of the other experiences you had. And then I think we, we will connect back. And I, I just want to, I just want to hit on one very, very quickly, because we're about to hit a break on radio. Um, you left Capitol Hill and you went to work for Duncan Brands. You worked for Duncan Donuts. Was that like, like super fun or incredibly fun? Oh my God, that was off the charts fun. One of the best jobs I've ever had. And let's be honest, you've got 
coffee everywhere, donuts are on the third floor in your cafeteria, fresh, you know, ice cream, donuts, coffee, cookies. Not only did I get a chance to work with some incredible people, but look, I, that was surrounded by that every day. So I spent as much time in uh, Massachusetts at, head, at headquarters as I could because, uh, you know, you just can't beat, uh, you can't beat two great brands like Dunkin' Donuts and Baskin Robbins, great people. And then great products that everybody in New England loves. Yeah. After moving to New England, I can attest. It's like a religion up here. So you'd left Capitol Hill. You were working for Duncan Brands. But then as we kind of teased at the top of the show, you took a really, really big Washington job and you ended up as, I mean, this isn't me saying this. This is the Capitol Hill newspaper, The Hill, saying you ended up as one of the top lobbyists in Washington, D.C. What was that like? Yeah, I was very blessed to have spent seven and a half years at Duncan with a great brand and company I loved. And then to be able to take that experience, Matt, and then go to the industry level. So now you're lobbying um, and representing, quite frankly, restaurants from mom and pops all the way up to uh, large chain, casual dining, fast. I mean, it was it was an amazing job and an amazing experience. But what I got, what I really loved about that job were the stories. I've met so many restaurateurs around the country, and it is the American dream of starting their own business and being in a restaurant with their family and family-owned businesses. And that job just really opened my eyes even further um, for the opportunity. It made me proud to lobby on their behalf and to represent them in Washington, knowing their personal stories and all that they have put into their businesses to make their dreams come true. Now, you've talked about the fact that it was it was a difficult end to your time there you to some degree it was it's sort of like you know there's there's research that shows that the end of an experience casts a pall over or casts a glow over your entire evaluation of it um what did you take away from the end of your experience there it obviously from your last comment didn't didn't cast a pall for you you you've highly valued that experience but what did you learn out of that what did, what did you take away from it yeah, sure. Look, and I, t- I tell people, look, Google my name. You'll see. How, you'll see how I left. Nothing like being smeared in the D.C. press. But no, look, I love the restaurant industry. My brother grew up working in it. My nephew works in it now. I am now being asked to represent restaurants um, in D.C. and get back into that world. I love the industry. The reason I left and 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 sort of the you know situation that I left under was you have to understand I was brought in in 2015. You're right. The National Restaurant Association is a behemoth of uh, of an association represents the second largest employer, uh, private sector employer in terms of the restaurant industry. I was asked to come in and wipe the slate clean and start new, start new, a new strategy on political giving, a new strategy on how they were engaging with members of Congress, a new strategy, uh, strategy on how they were engaging with mayors and governors. You know, I started a whole new legal arm of the association to represent restaurants uh, you know, in court, I had the opportunity to do all of that and to really chart a new course for the industry that had not uh, had not been established yet. So let's just say, you know, we ha- I had a lot of success. I mean, even the Trump administration, everything we sought out to do in the first year of the Trump administration, we did. We had unprecedented success, but you got to have an appetite for change. And that appetite for change after two or three years started to wear thin where we were doing so much and having so much success. But when the leadership says, hey, it's time to change course, um, you know, sort of they, that had change fatigue, I guess you could say, 
then look, that's sort of where, you know, my departure, uh, my departure, you know, came about. But the success we had there was unprecedented and unheralded. And I'm very proud of that on behalf of the industry that I still, you know, frequent often and, and very much still still love. I, I'd love to connect that to the next step that you ended up taking because you created a leadership program based around a quote from Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American congresswoman. And it's, it's based on the acronym CHAIR. And it, it very much, it's very much about, at least my reading of it, a willingness. It starts with a willingness to change, to, to take on something new and to be a little bit bolder about what you're doing. It reminds me a little bit of the, the joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? But the answer being, well, only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And it seems like in your, in your previous professional experience, you were dealing with a lot of light bulbs that were pretty happy in their sockets. And then you immediately jumped into something where the, the precondition is wanting to shake things up a little bit. Was that was that intentional? Were you were you looking for? I want to work with people who are who are looking to make that kind of a change. Kind of a change. Absolutely, yeah. So for me, look, you said it. You said it well. I have very often been the only woman in the room. I've very often been the only person of color in the room, and that's surprising for people because they think of DC as a very you know diverse city, and it always has been. Sometimes in the halls of Congress and government and business boardrooms executive teams, that's not always the case. So I found my voice in each of those roles, Matt, I'm very much, the reason why the Shirley Chisholm quote, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, really resonated with me and caused me to create the chair leadership program is because self-leadership has to come first. No one can do that for you. Before you can lead others, you have to lead yourself. And I felt like and I could tell you stories of, you know, I've gone to ask for promotions and being told no. Well, then I figured out how to ask again, and I was told yes. Those kinds of lessons that have nothing to do with business and politics, but just simply how you advance in your career, how you move up, what are those strategies you use, what are some of those language cues? I love that I now, uh, two years into it, almost I guess three years into it, I get to teach all those career lessons to others who also want to move up. But who don't want to go through sort of the trial and error that I went through in my career to figure out how to ascend to the highest levels that I was able to reach. So that quote really resonates with me because everyone has something of value to offer, but you have to look within yourself to know what that is, regardless of where you are in, in your career. I've taught that to CEOs. I've taught that to C-suite. I've taught that to actually some new students, uh, of new professionals who just graduated from school recently. Everybody has value to offer and has something to pull up that seat, pull up their chair to the table to offer, but helping them find their value proposition and what their voice means has really become a passion of mine. And what does the acronym stand for in your program? Yeah, so chair is for champion yourself. The idea is you are your own best cheerleader. You're, you're your own best champion. You're never going to ascend in your career if you don't believe in yourself and lead yourself first. The H is for honesty. You know, Matt, you've had it and I've had it. Some real feedback in my career that while I was busy, you know, sort of making my way to the top and climbing the corporate ladder, gotten some tough feedback along the way about my leadership style. And so self-reflection and self-honesty has to be a, a core piece of anybody's leadership tenets. Uh, the A is for adaptability. I always say this is the one 
And you and I learned it on Capitol Hill because we lived basically, uh, we lived in a fast paced environment every day and the same thing in business. But if you're not an adaptable person, leader or not, that is the one thing you're judged on that no one tells you you are. Are you adaptable and are you flexible to meet different situations? The I is for impact. So how do you become a person of impact? Not that you're just doing a job every day, but are you truly having impact? Are you truly making a difference? If you're in a C-suite role or if you're a CEO, yeah, that's a tough question for you to answer. If you're just you know, going through the motions and chances are you're not a leader or person of impact. So let's talk about how we turn that around. And then regrets, regrets is the R. And that is because there are so many people that I am coaching right now in my monthly coach, coaching program at who kicked themselves with the opportunities they missed because they were fearful to pursue it, or they were not sure where it was going to go, or, you know, they, there's so many regrets that come out in the conversation of, I wish I had done and, you know, fill in the blank or, or someone came to me and I didn't pursue it. So one of the things I really help people with in my coaching program is we got to get over whatever fear or reluctance or whatever limiting beliefs you have, because it's truly holding you back from some amazing opportunities that you've passed up. So how do we course correct that? Again, all about what you bring to the table, but those are all very different elements of what you bring to the table at different times in your career. I want to connect the dots in one direction and then in the other. So, okay. you know, thinking a little bit a about little bit. what you do what now, you do? your coaching, your podcasting, your writing, which all connect to one another. What parts do you think you drew from your politics experience from your, especially your Capitol Hill experience? What, what pieces of the acronym do you draw a direct line back to, you know, I learned this on Capitol Hill. Tell you every single bit of it. I tell people I've, I've lived at the intersection of business and politics for 20 years, over 20 years now. And those five strategies and that are truly the core tenets of what I learned on that started on Capitol Hill and continued through my corporate career, my trade association career. And now look, I'm my own, I'm a CEO of business I created. <laughs> I actually have to put those into practice every day because my clients hired me to represent them in Washington. And I've got to show my value every day as to why I should be a member of their team and why they want me representing them. So I'm kind of living, right? Preaching and walking out and living what I'm actually helping others do as well. But it all started on Capitol Hill for me. You know, one of the things that I took away from my Capitol Hill experience was the importance of the connection you talked about. I, I think it's the I in, in the acronym, it's the impact. And it, it, it does kind of very much spring from the story you told about Congressman Davis taking you to look at the, at the Capitol Dome, was feeling a sense of connection to the impact of what you're doing. How incredibly important that is. Because, I, I mean, and for me, again, the manifestation of it was the story I told about the flag and the piece in the congressional record. So much of what we do in our jobs, this is true on Capitol Hill, this is true in corporate America where I landed uh, for many years after my congressional career. So much of what we do every day has such a hazy connection to that, that impact vision, right? You know, you go to, to work on a place like, you know, in a place like Congress, because you're thinking, oh my gosh, gosh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And if I haven't been elected, I can at least work for the gal or guy who has been elected. I can be the person behind the scenes. I can be writing the bills. I, you know, I have bills that I've written that are in law and that are making an impact right now. And I pat myself on the back and I sprain my shoulder nicely doing it. But most of the time, that's not what's happening. 
you're answering constituent letters and, and you're editing and you know, you're thinking about how you're going to get this constituent meeting out. And if you work for the Metro Congress's district staff, you're thinking about how you have to make a call to the local rep for the Social Security Administration because someone's had a problem with the formulas applied to their monthly check. And you lose that sense of connection. One thing that really came through to me as I was looking at, you know, your book and your program is you really do emphasize that and and how important it is to kind of have that capital dome moment all the time and to refresh that sense for yourself that eyes on the prize, here's what this is all about. And even if I'm just, look, I'll, I'll digress to another story for a second. I was working on the 2004 coordinated campaign for Democrats in Maine. And I show up and I'm thinking of myself as a Capitol Hill hotshot. I'm the legislative director for a member of Congress. And I show up in the office and the, and the, the person who's, who's managing the coordinated campaign doesn't know what to do with me, doesn't know that I know how to do absolutely anything. And, uh, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe I don't know how to do anything. She says, I'm not sure what to do with you. I'll tell you what, we're going to have a meeting tonight and uh, we're going to do it in this warehouse that we have across the street and it's full of trash. Would you clean it? And I'm like, okay, I have been handed janitorial duties as my first campaign job. I thought of myself as James Carville, but that's okay. So what did I do? I worked my tail off. I found this artwork that was stared sort of away in the warehouse. I set it up in a ring to create like a nice meeting space. And everyone walked in and they were, you know, they, they reacted with, wow, this is more than we expected. And the only reason I accessed the energy to do all that was because eyes on the prize, I really wanted to beat George W. Bush. And this was the way I could contribute that day. So anyway, I digress, but that was, that's what really stood out to me of all the elements of the acronym is that impact thing, how important it is, no matter what sphere you're in, keep that vision of what you're trying to achieve in front of you. Yeah. People ask me, you know, why didn't you choose influence? I'm like, well, influence is temporary. If you want to have an impact that's lasting, that's permanent. There's a big difference there. And I think you're right. Uh, having impact, you know, waking up every day and, and knowing what that looks like for you, keeping your eyes on the prize, I think is a great way to say it. It's, it's what drives all of us. And while you and I started, you know, and you're right. I mean, we, um, we had, you have impact wherever you are. That's the other piece. People tend to look Matt for these big moments in their careers and they're waiting for that moment. And it's like, your moment was on the zoom call that just passed every single day. You have an opportunity to put these strategies in practice, but to have an impact and to bring your best self to show up, you know, to really talk about what you bring to the table and your value proposition. It's not some big moment. It's those everyday activities and conversations. And people come back to me and they're like, you know, you're right. I was talking to my boss and this is, and it's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, while we're waiting for the next big thing, everything else is passing us by. And that's where the impact every day really comes into play. It's like that uh, John Lennon line, right? Like life is what happens to you while you're making other plans and your career is what happens to you kind of as the aggregation of all of these little moments and things that you do, not so much, you know, the big grand, now it's time for the, you know, the, the signing of the bill. I, I mean, I, I also want to do this, this kind of connection back in the other direction because, you know, what you were just saying about impact versus influence really reminds me, one of my mentors in graduate school was David Gergen, the former presidential advisor. And he used to tell all of us as students, you know, look, there are two kinds of people who end up in Washington. There are people who go there to do something 
and people who go there to be somebody. And if you go there to be somebody, it's transitory. It's, it's empty. It's ultimately, you know, if you're all about the influence, you'll be forgotten tomorrow. There's no former, like former member of Congress or, or former staffer. If you go to do something that's permanent, you'll always have that. And it's, it, you know, it, it can't ever really be taken away from you. Do, do you, in those terms, as you reflect back on the time you spent as a staffer and as a major mover and shaker in Washington, do you, do you see that? Do you think that that equation is changing for people who are kind of in the enmeshed in, in Washington now? Are there, are there more people going to be somebody than to do something? Is it getting harder to do something? It's different. I mean, I'll be honest with you, the days when you and I were there, I feel like a lot of members and a lot of staff were there for the right reasons because we all, you know, we were on the right side of that question and that equation. It is, it's very different now because, and some people you talk to tend to see, you know, politics as the next stepping stone to something else. And it's like, no, it, I don't think that was the case for me. It wasn't a step, you know, I didn't want to be, I didn't grow up to be a lobbyist, you know, it just sort of happened. But for me being in DC and being working in a congressional office was all about serving the people and the member I worked for. It wasn't about the next big thing or who am I going to get to meet or, Hey, who can I get in front of to further my career? But yeah, I think it's changed a lot over the last few years. You can see a tangible difference. I think in the members who were there, quite frankly. And I think also in some of the staff members who are there, I mean, look, I always said the members I worked for, Matt, the members you worked for, they were there for the right reasons because we wanted to help people. And, you know, if we can make a little bit of an impact every day and change somebody's life, then it made our jobs worth it. I kind of get in the conversations I have now with members and staff. I, I don't know that that's uh, I don't know that that's a driving force as much as it used to be. Um, the partisanship certainly all that's happening around, you know, the, the, the latest and greatest soundbite that someone can get out on the news or the latest tweet that happens. Yeah, that atmosphere, it's changed. It's changed quite a bit and not, I, not for the better in some ways. In some ways it has changed for the better. In some ways it hasn't. Well, I, I agree. I, I, you know, and interestingly, during that time that you and I worked together on the Hill, we were both working for members of Congress who were happy to be backbenchers. Because yeah. they were, they really were motivated. We're motivated. And I, I remember being in, in meetings, obviously, with Congressman Davis, Congressman Cooper, and they were very much about what was going what on was behind going the scenes and the outcome, and not so much, you know, the 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 opportunity to get on the news. That that just wasn't their jam. And I, you know, I, one factor that I, I think has changed, and you just alluded to it, is. Kind of the combination of, look, first of all, I think the biggest mistake that Congress ever made was C-SPAN. The fact that you are literally on television all the time means that a lot of what you and I used to do that was very much behind the scenes, especially in like the appropriations process with earmarks and steering just a little bit of money to a project that might help your local community, all kinds of things that we used to do quietly are now very much on blast. And that's especially true in the age of Facebook, Twitter, and every other social media platform out there. And I just, I just wonder if, if there's any way to unwind that, because I can't imagine a sector or a job in America that would truly benefit from being on camera or on social media and dissected every single day in every single moment. It just seems to me that all of the effects have been bad. I, I can't think of a positive effect of all of this incredible overexposure. Yeah, well, I'll say two things to that. One, you think you're right. I think it's exacerbated 
uh, this need for the attention, knowing that, you know, everything you now do is on somebody's phone, on somebody, you know, on a camera that people are constantly watching. I do think it has exacerbated the problem of seeking that attention, looking for the next opportunity, not, not the backbenchers and the working behind the scenes that you and I were used to. But Beatspan also kind of bit me in the butt one day. Um, Congressman Cooper had a bill on the floor. Great. He and I showed up that morning wearing the same color, style, everything seersucker suit. Oh, no. He, he was in a black and white seersucker suit. It, listen, we're from the South, man, you know? And I was in a blue white seersucker suit. And somewhere there is footage of me and him on C-SPAN as he is on the floor uh, giving a speech about a bill that he was trying to pass. I am sitting behind him, and I will tell you the grief the sheer grief I got from that. You may have been one of those people. <laughs> it's possible. I, I can neither confirm nor deny. Matt, I thought, man, okay, if there's ever a time I never wanted to be on C-SPAN, man, today is it. But uh, no, I, I share that in jest. But no, I think you're right. And here's my fear, Matt. The Supreme Court now starting to televise their proceedings. I mean, look, it's it's kind of where Congress was 20 years ago when C-SPAN, you know, or years before that when C-SPAN first started, you know, airing Congress, it's, it's going to have an impact uh, for better or for worse. I think the question now is which one of those, but absolutely it has changed the game entirely. Well, and I think it's, you know, there's obviously a longstanding dynamic in politics that people say they want their member of Congress or their president or whatever to be someone they could go bowling with, get a beer with. There's like a famous Parks and Rec episode about that where Leslie Nope tries to go bowling with the one person in town who just doesn't like her. And, you know, look, the more we go down this road, the less true authenticity there's going to be in the people who represent us because everything is curated by, as you said a moment ago, a 25-year-old staffer who's super smart, super talented, and whose only job is to make sure that there's not a single moment that could possibly look bad. And look, you and I both lived through the, the worst consequence of the summer of 2009 was that was the summer of the town hall. Right. Where there were all of these astroturfy manufactured by Republican interest groups, Dick Army and whatnot, town hall attacks on Democratic members of Congress. Well, what did that do? It killed the town hall. Why? Because it's far more effort and work. It's Brandolini's principle, it's the BS asymmetry principle. It takes far more energy to dispel BS than to put it out there in the world. And so, and so it was just far harder for us on our side of the ledger to go to one of these things and to avoid having a moment that would live on in, in YouTube and social media forever and get excerpted out of context and make your member of Congress look bad. And so what did that do? It, it made us all say, well, let's not do this anymore. And so that's something we've lost. And we're on air in New Hampshire with a proud town hall tradition. No one wants to do that anymore because it's not possible because of social media. So I'm ranting. But that's that's one definite change for the worst that I've seen. Yeah, hundred percent. I think another change I put on the table for you there, and I think it plays into that is, you know, we're as a we, the collective we, right in Washington, we're so good at just doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Uh, whether that's policy, whether that's media, whether that's the conversations we're having around legislation. I think one thing, um, Matt, that there's a real opportunity for right now at this moment in time, given where our politics stands, given where the media attention is, is for someone to raise their hand and say, hang on a second. It's time we have a different kind of conversation 
in Washington. It's time that we start talking about policies that actually impact people back home, not just regurgitating the same things we've done for 30 or 40 years and that have that don't have a different result. We're just gas tax, right? A prime example right now with the gas prices going up. You can also talk about, you know, minimum wage is another one. You know, I'm like, it's a, it's a 1935 wage support system that was put together in an industrial economy, not a service sector gig economy that we currently find ourselves in. Yet we point to those same old policy prescriptions as ones that we continue to lean on. So I bring that up to simply say, there's a pivot point that's going to happen. It's going to either happen towards you know, some new thinking, some new policies, some new opportunities. I mean, look, that's why we were so successful at the National Restaurant Association. It's why we were so successful with Trump. Well, I hope you're right about that. The the name of your book, where people can get it? Yeah. Pull up your chair. Five strategies that will change the trajectory of your career. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Check it out, folks. And Cicely, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Matt, no, thank you. You're right. We could go on for days. But, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> 